Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Bobo, how are you doing this evening? Pretty mighty fine. Pretty mighty. That's pretty and mighty and fine, I would assume. Correct. <laughs> Tonight is pretty much just me and you, but um, our friend Matt Prude is going to chime in with us uh, because I thought it was, it's kind of a timely topic that perhaps we should talk about that kid in North Carolina that had uh, gotten lost at some point and he was gone for, I think, three days or something. And uh, they eventually found him. And when they found him, he said he claimed that a bear hung out with them and like helped them stay alive or something the entire time. And, you know, I know that that caused a small uproar in the Bigfoot community. Everybody's kind of pointing fingers at Bigfoot and saying, well, that clearly wasn't a bear. That was a Bigfoot. So I thought it'd be a good thing to talk to you about for a little bit, because I know you have a lot of stories like that, that you've heard um, through your many years of Bigfooting. Well, and I was one of those people in an uproar over that article, because when I, when I saw Mr. Bear kept me warm for three nights in a cave and then brought me back, it's like, Dude, that that's not a bear. That's a squatch. Yeah, well, a lot of people were claiming that, you know. Um, and of course, if this were uh, West Hollywood, they'd be claiming something else. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so a lot of people are claiming that it was a Sasquatch, and, and there are stories like that. In fact, David Polite's books um, uh, have a number of reports of missing people that have a similar sort of trope going on there. Um, yeah, and then I, I thought it'd be fun to bring in Matt Pruitt to talk about this as well. Uh, not only because Matt is one of my inner circles, I mean, he's one of the best Bigfooters alive today, in my opinion, but uh, also he has dug up, I believe, some historical information about this particular area that might resonate with those who are interested in this particular story. Yeah, Pruitt is definitely one of the best. I've known Matt Pruitt now for, gosh, probably 15 years, and he's a great guy to hang out with and a good, good guy to shoot the bull with. Right, right. Yeah. And- and he's from that part. Of, I mean, he's from the South originally, so he knows that area. Yeah, yeah. In fact, he he handles the vast majority of my East Coast uh, reports that are submitted to me, um, particularly from the South. I mean, Matt lives in Tennessee right now, uh, outside of Nashville. Um, but, you know, he's from Georgia. He has extensive uh, experience in North Carolina. He's been to South Carolina. You, you name it. He's been everywhere throughout the South looking for Bigfoot. Um, he's really active in the field. And, you know, I thought he'd be a good guy to bring in on this call, at least. Oh, for sure. So, Bobo, like over the last couple of days with the news items and everything like that, wh- what have you picked up about this? You know, like be be the reporter at large for me and, and let me know what's going on. Well, a three-year-old boy was playing out in the backyard with his little sister. He disappeared. Three days later, they found him not too far from the house in an area that's been searched plenty of times over. He was caught up in some thick brambles, but he had crossed over waist-high, waist-high in an adult rushing water because it had you know, been stormy, raining. 
the temperature dropped down into the 20s at night. I'm pretty sure he said he was in a cave. I know he said Mr. Bear kept him warm and protected him. And I thought he said they were in a cave at night, but I could be, you know, I've heard several of these stories of little kids talking about a bear kind of monkey thing, keeping them warm at night when they're lost in the woods. I know that he was found uh, where he would have had to cross waist high on an adult rushing water. And yeah, he said it was a bear. I picked up some stuff, but to me, it sounded like fake news. I honestly, uh, because I heard something about search and rescue guides were following whoops, which led him to the child. And that's not in any of the news stuff. I, I picked that up on some, you know, like Bigfoot related, whatever. Um, that wasn't in the, like any of the, the more standard news reports. And on top of that, uh, I guess the kid was, according to this other, you know, weird site that said, yeah, the kid smelled bad and the, he, he snuggled with the bear and, and, but none of the other news items said that. And I haven't found any follow-up interviews with the child in February, at least. Um, so who knows? I mean, has any more work been done? What's the most recent item that you've picked up? I'm dying to interview that kid. I mean, it's pretty tough to interview a three-year-old, but I'm, what I was curious about was, did he wander off or did he get picked up and carried off? One of the things I picked up from one of the standard news items was that the child's mother said, if my kid said it was a bear that he saw, that it was a bear that he saw. Like there, That's not an imaginary thing as far as his mom is concerned. Um, so some animal that the kid is calling a bear dealt with this child for at least a little bit during those three days that he was missing, which is interesting because just, I think... Was it yesterday? Yesterday, the day before, somebody was telling me about uh, somebody seeing a bear. Oh, I remember what it was. It was a report out of Kentucky. Somebody, a farmer, re- reported that uh, he saw a bear running away in its hind legs. So even adults could misidentify a Sasquatch as a bear. Apparently, the Pilates books are chock full of stories of young children going missing and having some sort of Bigfoot-like thing associated with it. Either somebody else saw one or there's footprints or the kid says there's, uh, there, there was something like that involved. I don't know. But, you know, that's another reason to talk to Matt because Matt's read all of those. Uh, he's the guy that actually recommended the books to me. Um, so let's go ahead and bring Matt in and uh, bring him in on the conversation here to see what he can add. Pruitt, are you there? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey, Matt. Hey, so uh, we're talking about that kid in North Carolina, and there's a couple things we wanted to talk to you about. Number one, I was talking to you a couple days ago, and you said that there you had dug up some information, historical information on the area, and we also wanted to get your take on the 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 theme, the the um, the trope, I guess, of children being abducted by Sasquatches or saved by Sasquatches or taken care of by Bigfoot, you know, that sort of thing. So, where do you want to jump in? The East being settled first by, you know, European settlers and being kind of the first place that print media was initiated and radiated out of has kind of the oldest history of people describing these particular animals, you know, large bipedal hair covered upright apes, you know, giant uh, primates there. So there's a great deal of history in the East. I know that for a lot of listeners, they might've thought that it was historically a Northwestern phenomenon, but uh, so North Carolina in itself has a great deal of history. And, you know, this where this occurred, where this child went missing and was, you know, thankfully recovered is in eastern North Carolina. So it's a little bit different than, you know, the areas that I've spent most of my field time in are the southern Appalachians. So western North Carolina and north Georgia, east Tennessee, that portion of the state. But eastern North Carolina is very ecologically rich. You know, there's a great deal of rainfall, a lot of forested land, massive black bear population, et cetera. So there are still some kind of wild and woolly places out there for sure. So it's it's definitely not 
the habitat would not exclude there being these animals there. The, the habitat's very analogous to other places that have a history of Sasquatch sightings and observations as well. Well, let me ask you this, because I'm not super familiar with North Carolina. I've been there a few times, you know, in finding Bigfoot. Um, it, what would be the, the most visible difference between where this kid was found and uh, where most of the Bigfoot reports are? So the Bigfoot reports are going to be, again, primarily through the Appalachian Range, especially down into the southern Appalachians. Uh, it's very mountainous, tremendous amount of rainfall. It literally is temperate rainforest. The southern Appalachians is 135,000 square miles of temperate rainforest with some counties there, like Transylvania County, uh, North Carolina, receives, I think, on average, over 105 inches of rainfall a year. Oh, so that's a lot. Very dense forest, whereas you go to that eastern part of the state, it's a lot flatter. Uh, it's very swampy, a lot of riverways. So there's a lot of riparian habitat. For example, like where this child went missing, you have um, the Pamlico River, um, a few kind of major rivers, and then this massive swampy area that basically butts up against the, the Atlantic coast. So it's, you know, if you imagine it being a heck of a lot more flat, uh, you know, swampy, marshy, et cetera, maybe some slightly rolling terrain. But, you know, visually, from one side of the state to the other, North Carolina is very diverse. Okay, so you're basically mountains versus flatlands, but both heavily wooded. Certainly. I mean, on that eastern side, you see a lot more of kind of the patchwork and the fragmentation of rural agriculture. So you do have wooded areas, but you see that kind of, you know, from a bird's eye view, that quilt looking uh, patchwork of, of agricultural plots, too. But again, big swamps, uh, big riverways. Yeah, when we went and filmed there, I was really impressed with that place. I mean, they got real mountains for back east in North Carolina. I mean, they, they get it to 6,000 feet there. But I think you got probably even more down in the swamp habitats because there's less people in those zones. I mean, well, I know the population is greater down near the coast, but there's more areas where people don't go down there, I think, because you know, they stay out of those swamps where those squatches are down low. I don't know. It'd be a hard distinction to make because the swamps, again, they're surrounded by this fragmented you know, multi-use private land. So if you look at the, the eastern part of the state there, you'll see there's not a tremendous amount of public land. So you have just to the south of where the child went missing is the Croatan National Forest. There's some state-managed forest lands kind of surrounding there as well. And then as you move up, you know, you have a couple of wildlife refuges on the coast itself versus if you go back to that western portion of the state, you have these massive tracts of national forest being like uh, the Nantahala National Forest and the Pisgah National Forest and then the massive, you know, uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park. So there's probably more people per square mile per capita in that eastern part of the state because so much of that land is arable and so much of that land is usable for agriculture. And so, you know, people probably settled there first. You know, people didn't settle in the Appalachians for a long time. In fact, you look at kind of the history of uh, indigenous people there. Um, you know, one of the interesting things is that they did not live in those mountains. You see evidence of people that inhabited the Appalachians in kind of the late, like very, very late archaic uh, Native American period, late archaic Indians, kind of woodland, et cetera. And then as they uh, progress and become larger communities, for example, becoming the Cherokee, they started to settle in the river valleys, the adjacent river valleys, like the Tennessee River Valley, et cetera. And the only signs of human influence you see in the mountains that date post that time would be uh, hunting tools. So it's thought that they basically did not live in the Smokies, but that certain times of the year they would go in there and hunt and have small encampments. So that area, the Appalachians weren't settled until basically European settlers made their way there. And that was the land that essentially nobody wanted. 
That's why Appalachia always had this kind of history of being impoverished and poor, because the good land that had good soil and was easily farmed and that you could easily grow things and easily kind of, you know, practice animal husbandry and have livestock went to wealthy people who could compete for that and buy it up like the eastern part of the state there. And then you had the hard luck, hard scrabble folk that wound up in the Appalachians, you know, uh, kind of a different thing. So that might be a bit long winded of an answer to the question. But, yeah, there's definitely more people in the east and have been there historically in that eastern part of the state. There are swamps there, but they're, again, they're small uh, comparatively, and they're going to be surrounded by agricultural land. I wonder if that has a uh, plays a role in the number of Sasquatch reports coming out of there, uh, because there's a couple, there'd be a couple of factors going on, of course. Number one is the sheer uh, population of Sasquatches in the mountains versus the lowland swamps and you know forested land down there. But also, uh, I know here in Oregon there are actually more Sasquatch reports in the Cascade Mountains than there are in the Coast Range. And I, part of the factor there is it's not like there's necessarily more in the Cascades versus the Coast Range. It's that there uh, a lot of the the Coast Range is actually private land, and people don't report things that they see on their own land as often as they would on public land because they don't want people like us snooping around. And I don't blame them. I wouldn't want us on my property either. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the things that I bring up so often in, when I do you know public presentations or uh, lectures or even speaking to kind of up-and-coming researchers when they ask about you know, how do I start? Where do I begin looking for these things? And the natural inclination is always to look for reports. And, you know, it's always been my position that, well, reports are going to tell you a heck of a lot more about what people are up to than what the Sasquatches are up to, because you have to have a human observer to have, you know, a Sasquatch observation. And so it has to be accessible by humans. It has to be something that humans are in there for a given reason. And then beyond that, all these other smaller factors like, well, they have to want to talk to somebody about it. And that someone who they talk to has to then bring that report to the public, whether that's in print media or on the local news or in a Bigfoot research group, website, Facebook page, you know, however that gets spread around. So if you look at my hometown in North Georgia, there's a tremendous amount of reports there. It's because I published those. Uh, you know, I knew a lot of those witnesses personally. I got their permission and blessing to publish those reports. And so if you were to look at a map with, you know, pins in a map of sightings, you'd think, oh, there's this cluster here. And someone might erroneously think, oh, well, there's more Sasquatches there than other parts of the Southern Appalachians. And the, the truth of it is, is that, well, you had this kind of uh, dedicated researcher or tenacious researcher myself who was actively digging up reports specifically for that place and making sure they made their way to the public eye. So there might be just as many observations in other places that I just don't know about or that didn't end up on the Internet. And also, too, you know, where I grew up is a big tourist town. So a lot of those witnesses were outsiders. They were people who were there kayaking, hiking, camping, sightseeing. You know, they, they have nothing to lose by talking about something weird they saw there versus to Cliff's point, you know, someone who describes seeing something strange on their property. Then they're inviting strangers and an outside element. Sometimes, you know, they don't tell anyone because they don't want law enforcement or, you know, kind of game and wildlife officials to get involved. So for sure, it, it's it would be impossible to tell whether there are more Sasquatches in the swampy flatlands versus the mountains solely based on the number of published reports. It would just be impossible. And what has ever gone wrong with inviting strangers into your home? Absolutely. Nothing. It's great. Nothing. Nothing. Just a regular Saturday night out for Bob's. Right. So then, Matt, 
I understand that you have been digging uh, into the historical record to find out more incidents from this particular area where the kid went missing. What have you uncovered? You know, when you have something tantalizing like that, that's it's just an interesting story, you know, to begin with. It's fantastic that he was found. You know, they don't always end that way. And so as soon as that was in the news, you know, it's of interest. It's here in the southeast. A lot of people are talking about it and sharing the story. And then for this, you know, the final component of the story, once he is found and he makes these kind of cryptic comments about that he was kept safe by this bear, like, oh, that's very interesting. Well, there are black bear there for sure. But not having spent a lot of time in that particular portion of the state myself in that part of the eastern uh, North Carolina, I thought it'd be interesting to look and see how many observation and encounter reports come out of there. So there are a lot of modern reports, um, some road crossing sightings even off the major roads uh, that kind of frame the area where the boy and his family lived. Uh, one of the more interesting ones that I found, there's multiple references to this. It was actually printed in a few different newspapers of the day. But yeah, there was an incident that occurred in uh, the 1870s that made it into the local news that was actually published there in eastern North Carolina and then reprinted in other places like in Ohio newspapers and some other surrounding states. So if, if you're looking on a map, you know, if you pulled up Google Maps right now to see where the child went missing and was eventually found, uh, there's a little town there called Ernul, and it's E-R-N-U-L, and that's in Craven County, North Carolina. And there's kind of an east-west running road uh, near Ernul called Aurora Road. And then there's a small side road that splits off to the south called Toller Road. And so where he went missing and was found was at the intersection, near the intersection of Aurora Road and Toller Road. And then just over to the west of there, uh, literally uh, about five air miles, you could say, um, is a swamp, a swamp called Kit Swamp that sits along a creek called Little Swift Creek. So, uh, you know, very close by the same general area in the same county. Uh, but there was an incident that occurred in 1875 uh, involving a local resident who saw something very interesting. And so I'll read this for you guys. This is from the New Bern Weekly Journal of Commerce there in uh, New Bern, North Carolina. And this was published on uh, August 21st, 1875. So it says, Asa Grundy, a colored resident of Kitt Swamp, relates a strange and startling incident that occurred in his immediate neighborhood on Thursday last, and which has occasioned considerable excitement and alarm among the inhabitants thereabouts. It appears that for some time past, a strange-looking animal has occasionally been seen by different parties lurking on the outskirts of the forest between sundown and dark, but until recently, no one had been able to approach the stranger near enough to describe its appearance. From the description given by Asa, we conclude it to be a nondescript which Barnum the Great Showman would be glad to possess, even at the expense of thousands of dollars. Its face and appearance is quite similar to that of the Wanderoo, having a long snowy beard or mane, and its body closely resembles that of a baboon, though it's, excuse me, while its body closely resembles that of a baboon, though from the knees down, its feet and limbs are in shape and form almost precisely human. In height, it would measure about five feet, while its volume around the chest would eclipse that of the Cardiff giant. Asa states that this nondescript has for several weeks past been preying upon poultry, garden vegetables, and green corn to an alarming extent, when on Thursday morning last, while his little girl of five years was at play in the corn crib with a neighbor's child, while himself at work, stripping fodder in the field nearby, he heard the children screaming, the dogs furiously barking, and his wife loudly crying for resistance, whereupon he swiftly ran towards the point from whence the cries proceeded, and at the edge of the cornfield met face to face with this singular being, with the children, one in each paw, making directly toward the woods. 
At the sudden approach of Asa, the animal being taken by surprise halted for a moment and it partially turned to change its course and a well-directed blow felled it to the earth. The children were released without injury, but before its capture could be accomplished, it sprang from the ground and with lightning rapidity gained the covering of the wood where all trace of its whereabouts remain as yet a mystery, though the forest for miles have been thoroughly searched. Much excitement and fear prevails throughout this section and no mother will again rest in peace until the strange intruder is captured and rendered harmless. We would suggest that those of our young men fond of adventure muster a company with the view of securing this nondescript prize as the undertaking would, if success crowned their efforts, be both pleasurable and profitable to them. Huh. I remember that one. Yeah, I've read that one before. That's an interesting one for sure. And how far was that from where the kid disappeared? Literally five miles. Uh, wow. You know, very close by. So basically, again, if you were to look on uh, you know Google Maps, the intersection of Aurora and Toller Road sits along Little Swift Creek. And if you follow Little Swift Creek just to the west a few miles, you find Kit Swamp, which is the landmark named in the uh, story there. Well, you know, I'm looking at the area right now on Google uh, Google Maps here, and I'm super impressed. There's a lot of very large patches of green here um, that can easily hide Sasquatches if they're moving around from one patch to another. A lot of uh, cultivated land, as you mentioned, and that giant river um, going through. And it doesn't sound all that inviting to me with a town called Tick Bite right away. <laughs> you know, just, it's just a little bit up, upstream here. Certainly on Finding Bigfoot, we had found Bigfoot's um, in smaller patches of green than what I'm seeing around here. That's plenty of green. Yeah, yeah. It looks like a lot of food is getting grown in the area, a lot of swamp, a lot of rivers. Um, it's got to be great habitat there. And, of course, that uh, historic report that Pruitt just read to us, um, I mean, that kind of says everything you need to know. They described the size of the animal. It described that it was carrying the children off, one in each paw. Um, I mean, that was the Sasquatch report right there. That's just an amazing report. I mean, it just goes, you know, for the skeptics that say, this was this all invented in 1960s with that film? It's like, no, it's been over 100 years, documented newspaper accounts. Yeah, yeah. It'd be like the same thing if you were trying to track down, say, an astronomical event, you know, just because there's no photographs of it. You can go back to writing in the late 1700s or early 1800s or whatever. And then you say, oh, yeah, this guy's writing about this. Or, you know, the, the there, there's a historic report from ancient China of I think it was in 1050 or something like that when when uh, a supernova happened. And nowadays we know it's the Crab Nebula. Um, but back then the Chinese astronomers wrote about it. And just because, you know, there's no photographs of it doesn't mean it's nonsense. And I think that these Bigfoot reports should be taken in the same historical light. I agree wholeheartedly. So, Matt, is that, uh, is that the only report from the area that you've been able to dig up or has there been others? Well, there are a host of historical reports from, you know, all over the southeast, you know, specifically in eastern North Carolina. Most of the ones that I've dug up over the last, you know, 17 years have been in the southern Appalachians. So but there are, there are no shortage for sure. I think what makes that particular one interesting is that it's clearly a description of an upright ape that is trying to abscond with human children. So it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting correlation. You know, these reports, they do exist. They're out there. Um, there are modern day reports. You know, I think Politis has done a very good job of aggregating similar uh, reports from the 1800s until now. Uh, there's a lot of examples of that in those books, but they seem to be a bit of a Rorschach test for a lot of folks, if you look at them, you know, the coverage of this particular one online, for example, it, it, what it basically occurred is when the child was found, 
his aunt had made a Facebook post saying the boy is safe. He's remarked that he was, you know, he spent the last two days, quote unquote, hanging out with a bear. And so there were hundreds or if not like thousands of replies on that public Facebook post. So I read through them that day because I was interested to see, you know, what people would say. And so there were people saying, oh, it's absolutely uh, a bear. And it just goes to show you the capacity for kindness and altruism in animals and other people saying, oh, this is absolute proof of uh, an intervening God who answered prayers by sending help in the form of a bear or it's an angel who's taken the form of a bear to protect the child. Or there were people saying, oh, it's a dead relative who's manifested in the form of a bear. There were other people saying, oh, well, he was clearly abducted and this is a screen memory. Some people were saying, oh, he was abducted by a person and the person kind of influenced them almost hypnotically with this screen memory. Other people were saying, no, he was abducted by aliens and this is a screen memory, et cetera. So it's, it's become a bit of a Rorschach test where people can see whatever they want in it. But I think for people like us who do kind of accept the reality that these apes exist, that these primates, hominoids, et cetera, do exist, then certainly it fits within that framework that it's possible that one of those animals was responsible. But, yeah, I mean, all we really have is this short blurb. I think, you know, the investigative part of me would be interested in seeing, you know, the first thing that he apparently said to his parents was that he wanted to go home and watch Netflix, and so that was kind of the first media quote that they pulled is like, he's doing well and he's ready for Netflix, you know? Yeah, yeah, so I'd yeah. I'd be interested to know, okay, well, what kind of Netflix shows does he watch? Because one of the most popular kid shows, when you Google like Netflix kid shows, there's a show called Masha and the Bear that's been on for like years. That's an animated like CGI show about this little kid that hangs out with a bear. So you'd be interested to know, well, what is this three-year-old watching on Netflix? He obviously watches it enough to have that become his first request after two nights in you know, cold weather, et cetera. So I think it's interesting to know that there is such a history of sightings and, and observations and encounters there, specifically this one about an ape trying to abscond with human children. But I think we'll probably never know what happened to this boy. But it's fascinating, and it's a fun thing to look into and speculate on, and that's really only because it turned out okay. You know, some of these right. cases— they don't turn out that way. And so it feels disrespectful in some ways to I, I see a lot of people online digging into a lot of the, the more tragic cases and trying to assign some Sasquatch implications there, which is, you know, may or may again, may or may not be attributable to Sasquatches. But I think in this case, everything worked out great. It's an interesting thing to think about. You know, with the discovery of that historical report from exactly the same area. You know, five miles away, I think is what you said. Um, that kind of brings up a couple fun points to speculate about. And, of course, this is all speculation. And number one is, of course, the halibut effect. Um, that and The halibut effect is a term used, of course, that uh, an area that once held Bigfoots probably still does, unless the area has changed dramatically because what the animals need are, is there, Right. I think this is kind of proof in the pudding there if this was, in fact, a Bigfoot report. But also the fact that uh, I think that local populations of Sasquatches um, have culture, basically. And culture, I would define as knowledge that's passed from one generation to another um, in a non-genetic way. Um, and what if back then this 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 you know kidnapping Bigfoot, what, what if there's been like a, a trail of that throughout the years? You know, like, it, what, when was that report again, Matt? What year was that? 
1875. 1875. So, you know, 150 years ago, that's pretty much two or three generations of Bigfoots, probably. Um, that's not that far uh, in time. You know, it'd be kind of an interesting thing to speculate about if the, if Sasquatches back then somehow learned that children were delicious and that has somehow carried on. It might be worth seeing how many other children have gone missing in this specific area. I definitely think there's some cultural differences between Bigfoots in different areas and some are more aggressive in certain areas and other ones are, you know, a little more mellow. Oh, for sure. For sure. I, I've noticed that. I mean, I noticed that early on really because uh, bluff Creek, for example, um, you know, Bigfooters have been working it for long enough, Bobo, uh, that like the Bigfoots just kind of not, they don't really vocalize so much there. Maybe they used to back in the day, but like from my experience, the vocalizations are rather few and far between in Bluff Creek, but you go to other areas, you know, up by uh, Chinook Pass or something in Washington, and they howl their head off quite often. And that right there is a cultural difference in Sasquatches. It is like some places they knock more, they whistle more. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, it's behavioral traits that are passed on to generation to generation is basically the definition of what culture is on a very basic level. Yeah, yeah, they got culture, baby. Yeah, there's a couple of things that I would say about that. So one of the interesting things I think about the Sasquatch, you know, subject or phenomenon itself, I think part of the benefit of traveling so much, which I know you guys have done and, you know, I have done to a lesser extent, is that I have absolutely experienced the same behaviors in the same context, be it the same kind of terrain features or the same uh, environmental situational context. And the Sasquatches, the apes will exhibit the same behaviors in those same contexts that I've I've had that in the Southern Appalachians, in the U.S. interior highlands, in both the Ozarks and the Washita's, had it happen in the Cascades, in the Olympic Range, et cetera. And so you, you realize that, you know, these behaviors are shared, which really indicates that they're innate behaviors, very much the same way that barred owls make exactly the same sound in Florida as they do in Washington State and everywhere else in between, means that that behavior was innate in the animal before it was distributed across this continent. And so a lot of these Sasquatch behaviors seem to be as well, that they will exhibit the same behaviors in the same context, regardless of where you are in the continent that they occur, which means that they were probably innate in the species. It's my speculation, as with many others, that they came here from Asia. So these behaviors probably existed with them in the Asian continent before they spread across what's now North America. And you see that reflected in these uh, indigenous people's legends as well. You know, they're very often thought to be stealers of children. That's a very common theme, and it's not something that's just relegated to one part of the country or one tribe. It's pretty consistent. So, again, that would be somewhat indicative of an innate behavior. And, again, these are animals, and they're animals of opportunity. You know, they don't abide by rules, you know, good and evil are concepts that only exist in the human mind. You know, if right. a cougar is, is trying to bring down a fawn, it's not because the cougar is evil and the fawn is inherently good. You know, if, if the cougar fails in its mission, it will starve or its kittens will starve, et cetera. So this idea that there are good ones and bad ones, it, you know, to me is entirely erroneous. That just does not exist in the natural world. Good and evil is an entirely human concept that only exists within us. Well, yeah, as always, you know, you, you've come with some great research, you know, you're a very bookish researcher as well as um, a good field guy. So we appreciate you coming on the show and sharing some of the stuff that you discovered about this particular area with us. 
thanks so much for having me. And, uh, you know, we'll just do our best to try not to get abducted ourselves. Although that might <laughs> be kind of fun. Yeah. I don't try too hard. I mean, that's kind of the way I want to go. Well, thanks a lot, Matt. We appreciate your uh, input and you're always welcome on the show. Thank you guys. All right. Later. So what do you think, Bob? Do you have any conclusions about this or do you have anything that you're speculating on? I was familiar with most of those reports about the missing kids. And people used to always ask me, do you think they're dangerous? How come you guys on Fighting Bigfoot never mentioned that? I said, well, we did talk about it. They would just edit it out. And there's enough shows on there saying these things are killers and making them scary. Like, you know, every Bigfoot movie or 90% of them are, they're murderous killers. So I always try to give them, you know, there's a few like that. But the majority of them are just like people, like you said. Bigfoots just might help people out in the woods every once in a while, but they also might eat people out in the woods every once in a while. But I think helping might be a little bit more common. I mean, when you look at the animal kingdom, there are other uh, animals that have been documented to do so. Uh, Dolphins have reportedly uh, helped drowning sailors. Um, There was a really cool news item just a few years ago, I think, of an orangutan I, I think helping um, was it a puppy or something out of a river in, in Indonesia in Sumatra right. I think it was yeah something like that I, mean, I think they had pictures of it if I remember right um, don't yeah, forget so, Lassie oh yeah Lassie of course right right they, 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 I mean the whole TV series was made about that animal helping others of course everybody I'm joking but I at the at the heart of it all yeah some Bigfoots may have learned the behavior of uh, uh, of eating people or children some other Bigfoots may have learned the behavior of helping the bottom line is if Sasquatches were truly a dangerous species out to get us um, human beings would have never made it this far there'd be very few of us left they outclass us in every way in the woods. Um, there's no way we could have survived an onslaught of angry eight foot tall Sasquatches or even, you know, hungry eight foot tall Sasquatches. Yeah. I, and you know, I personally like that. I like that sense of adventure, like hiking in bear country or, you know, grizzly bears or, you know, you're out in the water and there's where I live. There's a lot of, I've seen my friends get attacked by great whites. I've seen great whites up close. I, I think it just adds a level of excitement and makes you, a little more primal and get you back to your roots, you know, tap into that sixth sense and, and keep you on your toes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause at, at our heart, we are animals. We're a special animal, but we are wild animals in our own self-domesticated sort of way. We're part of the environment. And, uh, I think the Sasquatch or other large animals in general remind us of that in a very real way, especially at two o'clock in the morning out in the woods. Yeah, squatches definitely have a way, you know, just like great whites or grizzlies, they can keep you humble because if you get out around one of those things in their environment, you realize you're just a little hairless, weak ape. Yeah, and in my humble opinion, humanity could use a lot more humility. Right. (laughs) All right, well, with that, let's wrap it up, man, and I'll just talk to you in a few days when you do another one of these things. Yeah, I got some good people lined up, Cliff, so I'll be calling you back here soon enough. All right, Bubs. Talk to you soon, man. Okay, Cliff, and anyone else listening to this, until next time, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 